Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason, and I am joined today by... Dan Holder. Dan Holder, welcome. Dan, I have a question for you before we get started. (laughs) Oh, God. Between making it to the Galapagos, but not being able to take species home and get credit for the theory, Mm. or having to operate on yourself, Mm. (laughs) of those, which is the lesser of two weevils? (laughs) Uh, That was three options, wasn't it? Uh... Did I get... (laughs) I, it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't recorded in a while. Yeah. I would say that uh, having to operate on yourself would be significantly more painful than not being credited with uh, the discovery of all those beautiful species. Yeah, very physical. Yeah. But one of, must, of course, always choose the lesser of two. <laughs> two weevils. <laughs> two weevils. You must have known <laughs> that when that happened... That would be like the thing I would focus on the most. Yeah. Well, the, the joke. <laughs> yeah. 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 No doubt. <laughs> no how, doubt. As a committed pun master. contrived it felt to have these two little bugs on the plate mm-hmm. and like the 45 second buildup mm-hmm. that Russell Crowe's character does that joke is too perfect. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say a 45 second buildup because there is several times where jokes come after several chapters worth of build-up in yeah. the books. Oh, really? So, yeah, that uh, okay. 45 seconds was a little bit of light relief in comparison to that. So, welcome back, listeners. It's been a long time to a new episode of Really True Fiction, and those dulcet, euphonious tones you're hearing for once are not David, my cousin. I'm joined today by uh, Dan Holder, a local friend in Nelson here, to talk about Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, the 2003 film starring mm-hmm. Russell Crowe, Paul Bettany, and uh, Billy Boyd, mm-hmm. turns out. <laughs> Peregrine took himself at the, at the Perfect. helm. Perfect, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, looked, he looked seamless. <laughs> he did, didn't he? Snuck himself in there. Yeah, same kind of um, mannerisms and style. This is the first recording in a year for Really True Fiction, so I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really know if I remember how to do this. <laughs> it's Let's been find a out. long time. <laughs> I reached out to you to do an episode because I often do to people who I feel would make a good guest on this mm-hmm. podcast to have a wide knowledge base, some wit, and some interest in the world outside their head, and like books. And so I I didn't know. I remember this movie when it came out. And I've actually talked to David a little bit about this. There's that kind of period I'm a little bit nostalgic for, from about like 1998 to like 2005, mm-hmm. where just these epic movies were released, mm-hmm. like The Patriot, uh, Ar- even um, Armageddon, uh-huh. you know, like uh, these wide, the Postman, these swath, wide, huge films. I think even like you could probably throw the first, the Pirates of the Caribbean type yep. of idea yeah, into yeah. this, Lord of the Rings. So I have a very kind of nostalgic, uh, but I never actually saw this movie. And you, you didn't um, see this at the time. I never saw it. This oh, is the baby. first watching. Mm-hmm. What I didn't know about is that this is based on uh, a book series. So first question, how many books are in this series? I think it's 20, and then the 21st was published posthumously after it was finished off by somebody else. So the 21st was coming. So the series, um, I've never actually read the 21st, but I have read all 20, and it ends a little bit abruptly and a little bit uh, unsatisfyingly because it wasn't intended as the end. So did it, it, because he passed away? Yeah, that's right, he always passed away. So it it was written over... I think it was about 50 years, something oh, like wow. that. Yeah, it was 69 mm. was the first one. And then, mm. it, yeah, I think he died in the in sort of early um, 2000s. In the movie, so, sorry, how many of the books are covered? Ah, so the movie is, is like an amalgamation of of little um, or little vignettes taken from the whole series, pretty oh, much. Oh, wow. Yeah, so okay. it, it is, uh, the movie is very exciting, right? And it starts off very exciting. Mm-hmm. And I think I picked up Master and Commander, which is the name of the first novel, expecting it to start in the same way and was very quickly disappointed because <laughs> the first <laughs> half of the first book is all sort of chit-chat as, uh, as, as Aubrey and Matrin get to know each other on land. Uh, right. So there's no exciting um, 
military stuff yeah. going on at all. So Jack Aubrey is the ostensible protagonist, played mm-hmm. by Russell Crowe in the film. And then what was the doctor's name? Stephen Maturin, which Maturin. is a kind of funny name. He's yeah. a uh, part Catalan, part Irish Republican who decides that he hates the tyranny of Napoleon more than the tyranny of the British crown. So mm. ends up uh, lending his services. Hence the, the lesser Brits. of two weevils. Hence the lesser of two weevils, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to laugh at that joke a few times. <laughs> yeah, cool. And um, he's played by Paul Bettany mm-hmm. in the film, and they both are great. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed their, uh, their portrayals. Today we're going to be talking about most like the leaping off point is the film Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World is the subtitle, I guess, or part mm-hmm. of the title. I can't really remember. Master and Commander and The Far Side of the World are titles in the 20 book series. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Which just rather underlines just the, the fact. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was cool because I got to set it in the South American, Atlantic, and Pacific around the way. Although I felt, well, I'll get into it. There's mm-hmm. a few parts where I was like, I feel like. This is a gloss over part from the books. They traveled really fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The beauty of film. But before we get started, uh, I just want to say welcome back, everyone. Thank you for listening to Really True Fiction. It's been a hiatus that wasn't ideal, but uh, I feel a little rejuvenated and ready to go with some more episodes. Uh, there's going to be another one in the not too distant future with a few other friends from a novel that we just finished, or I just finished reading about a North Korean spy. <laughs> Which is pretty cool. That's pretty exciting. Uh, so I'm looking looking forward to that one. So um, you can find Really True Fiction on the podcasting app of your choice, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're on Amazon. If you feel so inclined, I'd really appreciate a five-star rating or review or whatever review you feel is adequate for the quality of podcasts that you're getting. And if you like it and you like other, you know, other people like books, you can tell them about it. Word of mouth is a really good way to go about having new people find the show. So, Daniel. Damn. Mm. Sorry. I actually don't know. Do you have a preference? No, I don't. No, no either. Hit me. Okay. Daniel makes me feel like I'm a bit in Mr. trouble. Mr. Holder. I quite like that. <laughs> Sir. <laughs> it's Doctor. Actually. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Sorry. <laughs> Sir Doctor. <laughs> Before we like give a kind of plot rundown mm. of this, whenever we have guests on this show, I always, it's always up to the guest to pick the source material. I haven't strong-armed any guest yet. Although it's not a beyond the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. So what when I asked you about anything, what was it about this book series that was like, okay, yeah, I think I'll settle on that one as one to talk about? Well, um What does it mean to you? It, it means it means an awful lot to me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I read a lot of books, I like a lot of fiction, but I figured that this series is probably one which most of the listeners uh wouldn't have read. It's pretty hard to get into and it's pretty off-putting for a lot of people mm. but uh if you stick with it there's a lot of there's a lot of gold in there and as a sort of a teenage know-it-all who liked history but also you know liked action <laughs> sure. um this series has had has has those in spades so it just really captured when i was a teenager mm-hmm. and i've watched the movie a whole bunch of times because of the action again and my mum is rather uh, partial to that era of russell crowe movies so sure. it kind of appealed a kind of Everyone in the Gladiator. family was happy to There's watch it. Another, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. Epic from that era. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, Which we actually have done right on in this the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone's read Harry Potter. Yeah. Not everyone's read this. <laughs> True. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. What was your intro into it? How did you find out about the books? I think probably from the movie, I think. Okay. What it was, it was 2003, was yeah. it? Yeah, so I was 12. And I definitely read one or two of the books around the time. Struggled to get into it, but then kept coming back i've probably read the first one three or four times mm. now because i've started to reread the series but then starting a few years ago I, I downloaded them all on audiobook and just ripped through all 20 yeah uh, and now i'm halfway through my second listen through again <laughs> <laughs> so what we really need is a master and command a trivia night oh yeah hit me up <laughs> everyone will <laughs> exactly. be on your team that yeah one. i tell you what my knowledge of 19th century naval terminology is uh pretty good these but didn't days. you miss edson or whatever. That oh, was. I did miss Ensign. Yeah, but they don't have Ensigns in, 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 in uh, this. There we go. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. not your fault then. Exactly. Not your fault. I think I already mentioned my experience with this was pretty negligible. Mm-hmm. I had, I remember it. Like, I remember it being quite advertised mm. when it came out. I'll talk about this more. And I remember thinking like, whoa, this is quite the visual, like a stunning visual of a film of um, how much work they put into 
bringing to life this era of totally. ship building. The whole texture of the movie is, is just so tangible. It's fantastic. Yeah. You can see all the ropes and the rigging and all in the sails. And I think it compares kind of interestingly to the, uh, to the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which are obviously, you know, adventure set largely at sea. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of ships and their sort of central characters to uh, to the movie but just not made with the same love, right? It, no, it, I mean... It, the ships aren't brought to life in the same way. It, in a way, like, I know that it's set in reality, but really, to me, Pirates of the Caribbean is a fantasy totally. movie series, and this yeah. is not, no. right? Like, this is a historical realism series. Entirely, And yeah. you can tell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, the, like <laughs> the, the ships in this are way more intricate, mm-hmm. and just so many people. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Before we dive in, why don't you tell us what happens in this movie? I, I watched it recently, so I can if you want. <laughs> well, I'll give you an overview and you jump in with, a, okay. with anything that I've missed. So as, as, as we've said, that the, the movie is made up. It's an amalgamation of plot points taken from a whole all across the series. Right. But in essence, the story could absolutely have been a book in its own right in the sense that it is Jack who has some sort of orders that he needs to follow. He needs to get from A to B. He needs to take out some Frenchman uh, who is rampaging their way across, it could have been the Mediterranean or the East Indies. In this case, it's uh, on their way round uh, the Cape of South America to to, to wreak havoc in, amongst the whaling fleets, I mm-hmm. think, right? Uh, all sorts of subterfuge happens you know <laughs> the uh yeah. the, uh, the the french captain ends up being a, a wily opponent and he, he he comes at them out of the fog and and uh, wreaks havoc with them and so then this what starts out as a a mission quickly becomes personal for jack and it's, it's a battle of wits between these two captains yeah it's alluded to a little bit in the movie i feel like it's fleshed out more in the books mm-hmm. the other captain being the only other person around who kind of knows what it's like for you yeah yeah well yeah, that's true. I mean, perhaps this might be a little uh, uh, digression, but oh, that's in the, con- <laughs> that's that's in the right. contract. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. This this loneliness thing, the idea that enemy captains are the only people who can really relate to the struggles of being a captain, is a major feature of the books. Mm-hmm. It's it's very interesting that the captains cut these isolated figures. They're they're alone on you know strutting around their poop decks, and they can give orders but they can't have personal communication they can't have personal conversations with anyone else on board mm-hmm. um, they can't show their private emotions to their underlings and they can't bounce ideas off anyone so what was my understanding is that what was not uncommon at the time was for captains who are typically gentlemen you know aristocrats mm-hmm. uh, minor aristocrats would be they would take their particular friends they would have a position on board whereby <laughs> they could invite a fellow aristocrat, someone they can, they can actually have a conversation with. And in this book, Maturin, Stephen Maturin, performs that role. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the captain's confidant. He's his best friend. He bou- they bounce ideas off each other. And Stephen Maturin is, is the ship's doctor. But that role is, 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 is kind of, he's kind of shoehorned into that position. Really, he's there to be the friend to the captain. Is he a doctor? back home he is a doctor back home and he's a very capable doctor and and he quickly throughout the books and indeed in the movie he quickly becomes this sort of mythically talented surgeon character to the uh to the enlisted men Mm. uh there's this there's this scene where he performs a bit of brain surgery right yeah (laughs) i think it's joe place who's this uh recurring (laughs) um uh, able seaman character uh he has a depressed fracture of the skull and Stephen Maturin, in full view of everyone on the ship, digs out this piece of <laughs> this floating piece of skull and replaces it with a hammered out coin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but interestingly that that scene uh does happen in the books, but it happens off screen. It's oh. ludicrous. And it's referred back to time and time again across this twenty book series as evidence for Stephen Maturin's like his, exactly yeah, his yeah, sheer yeah. accomplishment. But it happens off screen, which is just this wild bit of writing. Totally. Um, well, I mean, it, it, I don't know how intentional this would have been. Of um, it was Patrick O'Brien, right? That's right. He's I, the I saw. I remember the name at the end of the credits. Yeah, I, I didn't look it up, audience. I promise. That's not <laughs> <the> work we <laughs> do. <laughs> that could mirror some of the elements of like what I, what I, I have to guess were part of the like legends of seafaring in the first place. If you can imagine at the time, we as the audience of this movie get an inside scoop granted a fictitious story but one that is based on things that really happened Mm -hmm. in a way that like 
the people back home in England wouldn't. And then the sailors would come home and tell these stories. Totally. And so like the legends happen off screen anyway. Yeah, that's that, yeah, that's a nice view actually. I, that had never occurred to me. That is, uh, yeah, that is very interesting. I mean, there's like I always a that nugget. Was yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, um, sometimes there's serendipity in art, and yeah. <laughs> that could just be one of them. Yeah, but I do enjoy a good artist who can mirror a content of art with a form of mm-hmm. it or something mm-hmm. like that. You know. Um, so then what I also remember is that like, yes, Jack is trying to capture the Acheron, is that Mm -hmm, what it's called? mm -hmm. The French ship. The Acheron, yeah. Um, that is much more technologically advanced. Is that true in the books too? Yep. Yep. Because it felt a little Hollywoody. Yeah. (laughs) I have to say, we're the the underdog and they're the overdog. So we got to trick them somehow, which is good storytelling, but. It, uh, it happens again and again. The, uh, the, uh, the surprise is, is an old well-built uh but old and slightly undergunned frigate um it's been going forever and and Mm -hmm. jack captain jack aubrey was a was a young midshipman in this ship which is related uh which is mentioned in the movie right right there's this time which is slightly shoehorned in where one seaman is showing another uh the 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 initials ja which a young jack aubrey has carved into the mainmast right yeah and the French under Napoleon had access to you know all the uh, all the forests of Europe, right. and Britain by the the end of the eighteenth century had already chopped down all its uh, <laughs> all its oak and uh, you yeah. know all its big forests. So we had a large but rapidly aging fleet spread mm-hmm. out across the whole world, trying to take care of this enormous empire. And uh, in this period, the French had newer, heavier, better ships and frigates. Right. And they're yeah, new kids on the block. New kids on the block with the with the new bigger toys. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And so then they sail around the Cape Horn, mm-hmm. and it's cold. But that's a very short part of the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they go to the Galapagos. They find the Acheron there, and there's this tension between duty and science, which mm-hmm. I think is an interesting part of the story. It almost feels like an anthology movie with one like underlying plot through all of it very much like harry potter actually Mm -hmm. right where there's every book has its own thing and it felt like okay yeah once i knew that these were this movie was based on books the movie made a lot more sense than Mm -hmm. i think it would have if i just watched it man this is an ambitious film yeah i think that's really bad they're taking a lot on (laughs) in this and uh, lots of time jumps between scenes huge time jumps but that's okay on the time jumps these two characters Stephen matron and and jack aubrey they reflect some famous double acts in British naval history, including mm-hmm. uh, Captain Cook and Sir Joseph Banks, right. uh, and who together travelled to Australia, and then uh, Captain Fitzroy and, and Charles Darwin. And in both the accounts of Banks and um, Darwin, and actually also Fitzroy, wrote accounts of their travels. Mm. And it, they, they have these similar period, these similar time jumps in these, in, the, in these travels because these journeys around the world took, you Forever. know, literally years. Yeah. And in, in Darwin's account of the Voyage of the Beagle, there's just the whole months where just nothing happens. Yeah. You know, so those time jumps happened in, in, in the accounts of, of real life journeys totally. as well. I wonder what they did. What do you think they do to entertain themselves? Yeah, well... Work? <laughs> Yeah, in the case of all, in the case of of, of Cook and uh, and Fitzroy, work yeah. and work themselves almost to death. Robert Fitzroy, again another little digression. Who, who was captain of the Beagle, mm-hmm. uh, which was the ship on which Charles Darwin uh, travelled uh, around the world and, and famously travelled to the Galapagos. Fitzroy's predecessor shot himself going round the tip of uh, South America because the monotony and the loneliness was just so so great. Wow! If that comes across in the movie. It is reflecting real life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's um, there's a section of the movie where, if not monotony, certainly superstition is playing a big role. Oh, yeah. In yeah, yeah. Behavior. Anyway. Okay. So I guess the first thing that kind of occurred to me to ask you about this film is um, how much of this movie or these books do you think is playing on a particular element of British psyche ah. and lore? <laughs> and this kind of seafaring wanderlust or this attachment to, I don't know the right word, but something British about it. Mm -hmm. This is a very British film, Mm -hmm. even though it's a Hollywood film. Like 
there's a scene kind of relatively early in the movie where everyone is talking about Lord Nelson, right? Mm -hmm. And he's obviously this kind of mythical, legendary character in the history of the British Navy. And what kind of man was he like? Like, what, what did he do? What are little stories you can tell us about him? And, you know, that's just kind of a proxy or a stand-in for a much broader conversation. But, like, what was our fleet like? Like, what did these ships do? Near the end of the movie, this ship is England. Mm-hmm. So it's almost, like, pretty overt at some point. So what what d- does the role of the English fleet, I guess, play in the British psyche? Yeah, <laughs> that is an interesting question. I, I think th- this idea that this this ship is England is 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 central to how uh, the navy was viewed, has been viewed in Britain for a large part of our of our history. Less, much, much less so now since the decline of, of mm-hmm. the British Empire. The navy was Britain's eyes, ears, and indeed, you know, muscles abroad. It, the, the, the navy which protected the British Empire generated or p- protected those colonies abroad which generated so much wealth and made britain into a superpower nelson continues to be a pretty mythical figure uh, in britain we have nelson's column for example and nelson a statue stands i don't know how high it is 100 feet at, uh, at the top of this column looking out over 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 london in trafalgar square i can't help but notice uh, i probably live in a town yeah exactly. named after this person <laughs> yeah 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 uh, that's actually not true nelson bc oh. is not named after horatio nelson okay you but trafalgar high school right. in nelson is named after the battle of trafalgar which is nelson's uh, most famous picture so what well, that's a funny coincidence <laughs> yeah i know yeah. what is nelson bc named after uh, the first the first mayor apparently oh i, I, I looked that up oh. yeah i thought the first mayor was named houston oh bloody hell here we go well no no you caught me out well, there's no way to figure this out. Let's go with a local bureaucrat. <laughs> okay. So going back to this uh, this issue of, of the fleet being, of the ships being England, this isn't really touched on in the movie because mm. it's an adventure movie and they don't have a whole lot of time to go into intellectual discussion about, about nationalism. But in, in the books, Jack is Middle England, which is a phrase which may not may not translate to North America. That Jack is inward looking nationalistic but not aggressively so right he eats roast beef he likes tradition you know he is can he is conservative or, or reactionary mm-hmm. um he is strong he is brave he's not overly intellectual and Stephen he, maturin he celebrates the heroes he absolutely right. celebrates the heroes yeah. he's practical Stephen maturin uh the doctor is republican he abhors nationalism and he kind of represents modernity in a way that whilst jack represents traditionalism sure going back to the french having newer stronger faster ships and also being this republican force in europe that kind of mirrors the traditionalist versus progressive totally uh, attitudes oh uh, and that era of history is yeah exactly one of the most written about from a political philosophy and practice Mm -hmm. from the 1770s to the end of to waterloo basically Mm -hmm. is one of the most volatile political eras in human history (laughs) so a lot of the ideas that the matrons of the world would have been talking about were starting to be in one form or another implemented Mm -hmm. which would definitely have been um what would be the right word like noticeable to the Jack Aubrey's of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't imagine, well, maybe this is a theoretical, but like, do they ever talk about their opinions of the French Revolution in the books? They, so not so, not so overtly. They all agree that old Napoleon, Boney, is, uh, (laughs) is, uh, is bad and and, and tyrannical. And it's frequently, it's, well, it's not frequently, it's occasionally, that Maturin expresses his regret as to how the revolution has gone and has mm. led to tyranny rather than freedom. You know, he, he is a There were a lot of people like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who were quite in favor of the storming of the Bastille, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we're like, oh, this... This <laughs> <We laughs> hasn't worked out quite how I wanted it to. Well, I, I have a... I've talked about it in other episodes of... Um, like a fundamental difference between the American and French Revolution was that there was no James Madison in France. Mm-hmm. There was nobody, who, well, and there was others, obviously, but he was, to me, the 
most luminary example of someone who figured out how to make a country after a revolution, not just <laughs> we'll figure it out after, right? <laughs> you have to have a plan for the end game. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I still feel a little bit wondering. So, yes, obviously Britain hasn't had a fleet mm-hmm. to be almost spiritual about mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. But it definitely seemed that this story is, is – is this story written for a British audience primarily? I think the original publisher was actually American. But yes, I think the answer is absolutely yes. It, it is written for, for someone who has, A, a familiarity with the history mm-hmm. because the context is never well explained, at least a passing interest in maritime history mm-hmm. and naval terminology because the terminology is never adequately explained. And – I think a key part of the context is uh, the context in which the books were originally written is the success of other explorations of British masculinity mm. at the time, yeah. like Bond, um, sure. or <laughs> or maybe even John le Carre's George Smiley character, who are all subtly different, but are all male British figures mm-hmm. who go out and interact with the wider world and represent Britain, mm-hmm. like different aspects of Britain and British power. Well, and I just got so many, <laughs> there's just a lot of like talk of duty. Oh, yeah. And the idioms are all British in the movie. And mm-hmm. it's, I don't want to stereotype it, but it's this kind of like stiff upper lip. Oh, yeah. Well, there's that famous Nelson quote about uh, on a cold, cold night, Nelson is said to have refused his greatcoat because thinking of England will keep him warm. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) While he's out, you know, rampaging the world. Well, I was a little bit... Movies are so good at this, at bringing it back into the forefront of, like, how brutal this era is for people. There's that scene really early in the movie where they're they're the first time they get attacked by the French ship and the... um, Again, I won't know the terminology, but mm-hmm. the, the guys who shoot the cannons, what mm-hmm. are they called? Do they just have gunners. A, just gunners? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, like, gunners have to, like, just sit there not knowing where the cannonball is going to come through on their side. Maybe see their buddies, like, two guns down get blown away. Mm-hmm. And they just have, like, steady, steady lads, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I'm sure that's the French had to be the same mm-hmm. or any other naval powers. But, like, I was just – I guess I was kind of – maybe this is just a comment. Like, how different – that mentality is than anything I'm used to. Yeah, it's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah. And, it, and it, you know, nowadays a stiff up in Britain, a stiff up lip, an attitude of having a stiff up lip is slightly, slightly frowned upon. Sure, know, it's a little yeah, bit yeah. old fashioned, it's unnecessary, it's, you know, kind of mm-hmm. conservative and, yeah. and somehow lacking compassion. But back then, you needed a stiff up lip because. Your mate's gonna head was gonna get blown off by a random cannonball. And past. you are juxtaposing that to this more ethereal value of duty. Mm-hmm. It's your duty to stand by, yeah, and yeah. whether it's on a boat or in a battlefield, to just if, if it's your duty to get your head blown off by a cannonball, well, that's too bad. That's part yep. of the job. And you got to suck it up. And, and it's amazing how much that was just kind of ingested by people. Yeah, 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 part entirely. Of life. And to put yourself in that kind of danger when if something bad happens to you, your only recourse is a surgeon, you know, with no sort of antiseptic. No. Uh, you know, like uh, Stephen is 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 a uh, is an incredible surgeon by, by draw- standards. Like drawings of bodies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like... He's got drawings of bodies. And, you know, the, the pain that you'd have to go through to, for any sort of medical procedure would just be just unfathomable, right? Mm-hmm. You know, having limbs chopped off without anything other than a sort of pat on the head and a swig of rum. And a stick know, in your mouth. And a stick in your mouth, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and something which does come out in the books is an exploration of the brutality of medicine at the time, sure. uh, which is kind of interesting. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I always find what is so impressive about historical pieces that uh, is is if they do their homework mm-hmm. and really nail like what was, what well, what did it feel like to mm-hmm. be in that time? There's obviously these beautiful shots when they meet locals from Brazil and the waters are beautiful, but like most of the movie is kind of they all just seem miserable. Yeah, it's just a miserable time. Yeah. And I guess to bring it back to the first point I made here is like the attachment is that it's just all England. Yeah, like they're doing it for England. The ship is England. There's something, there's like a, a fire in the hearth still mm-hmm. of homeland mm-hmm. that is uh, enervating 
all of these sailors and Jack too. And even though he might not want to admit it, same with Stephen a little bit. It seems to me he can at least, if if broached the subject, can appreciate that there are people in his country like Jack who at some level will defend his desire to go be a naturalist, right? Like it's not yeah. totally shut down. I don't know. Is it like that in the books? Like is he? No, open? I think that's fair. You know, Stephen absolutely acknowledges occasionally well i'd say probably deplores but does acknowledge the fact that what elevated things in life that the real pleasures in life are afforded because of the bravery and and uh, shown mm-hmm. by characters like jack and people you know offering up their flesh in uh uh in in payment for 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 mm-hmm. for Stephen, the luxuries of Stephen's life yeah so what are some parts of the movie that have always stuck out to you or, or you've found fascinating or interesting or elements of the story. It doesn't just have to be the movie. It can be the books too. Yeah. Um, I like, there's there's a whole sequence uh, with the Jonah. There's, I think it's Mr. Hollam, who's uh, one of the young gentlemen, one of the midshipmen, who is actually quite an old mid- midshipman. He's he'd probably, <laughs> again, I'm just <laughs> lifting out a bit of knowledge from the books here. Yeah. Uh, he would be trying to progress towards uh, being a lieutenant. Okay. Uh, a lieutenant to you lot. Uh, it's not. You hap- can use them interchangeably. Uh, thank here. you. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not happening for him. Uh, and then every time he's on watch, the Asheron seems to appear. He's on watch at, at the beginning when the Asheron appears out of the mist. And then he's on watch later on in the movie when, God, something bad happens. There's the squall and someone gets swept overboard. Yeah. Right. And they have to cut the mast. They loose, have to cut the mast. Which, I made which a is another interesting point. Yeah. Is um, a real life trolley problem. Yes, exactly. I, I don't yeah. know. Are you familiar with the trolley I'm problem? I'm familiar with yeah, the trolley so, problem. Yeah. Yeah. So when you take it to that extreme, it's kind of a no brainer. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like that's something that happens in war, but also just. We should, we should explain what happens. Is it. A cannonball or or lightning that knocks the mask off? I can't off. remember, yeah. but it's under Mr. Holland's watch. Right. And something happens, either a cannonball or, or a bit of weather, and someone falls in the sea with uh, a bit of the mast. And it's trailing behind the ship, and it's, and it's dragging the ship broadside on, parallel to the, uh, oh, sorry, perpendicular to the direction that the waves are coming from. Mm-hmm. And if they can't either cut this man loose and cut off this bit of sail, uh, they are going to get battered by the oncoming waves. Yeah. So and the whole ship there's your trolley down. problem. Exactly. Yeah. The whole the whole ship goes down. Whatever 170 people are still exactly. on. Can they haul in this this sailor? Uh, he's quite a popular figure before the ship gets battered. Well, anyway, and then they make that choice. But let's go back to Mr. Mr. Holland. Mm-hmm. All these things, all these bad things happen under his watch. And at one point they're, uh, they're becalmed in uh, the doldrums. Uh, there's no wind. They're running out of water. They, uh, they can't move because obviously it's a sailing boat. <laughs> so everyone starts talking about Jonah, which is the story of the from the, from the Bible. Mm-hmm. You'll know more about that than I will. <laughs> but uh, they think that Mr. Holland is causing all this bad luck, and they get into Mr. Holland's head, and in the end, he starts to believe it, and he takes action. Yeah, and, and he jumps into the water with the cannonball himself. The yeah. The well, the the yeah. biblical story is that God told Jonah to go to this town called Nineveh, mm-hmm. which I think is in modern day Turkey, mm-hmm. to go basically proselytize and tell all of them about. God and mm-hmm. Jonah doesn't particularly find this a um, attractive mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, employment opportunity, so he gets on the boat and uh, just doesn't go. And then God basically says, "Well, fuck you." So <laughs> gonna just make it a storm and terrible. Uh-huh. And uh, then all of the other people on the boat are like, "Well." It's probably Jonah's fault. He's bad luck. Let's just throw him in the water. Oh, so they throw him in the water. Yeah, so they throw him in the water. He spends three days in the belly of a big fish. Mm -hmm. The big fish pukes him up into Nineveh, and then he's like, well, I guess I was wrong. And then he goes and tells Nineveh about God, and they like him. Okay, fair enough. Well, unfortunately, Mr. Holland doesn't have that uh, (laughs) that happy ending. But I I can't really remember the point of the story (laughs) in the Bible. I think it's just... Jonah would have saved himself time if he had just done what God wanted in the first place. But yeah, so like all of the sailors on on the surprise think, what's his name, Mister? I think it's Mister Hollum. Hollum, yeah, yeah. Think he's bad luck. That's right. And he believes it too, which I think is probably like a little bit. It, they don't. The movie doesn't go into this very much, but a little bit of like the psychological toll that this would take. Yeah, yeah. You gotcha. you referenced it a little bit earlier with the monotony of oh, it, yeah. like um, the superstition. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that in 1805, the average, though they would have a lot of know-how, the average ship sailor would have a lot of knowledge about the ins and outs of meteorology 
and no, not uh, at all. All of the other factors that go into the weather. Yeah, uh, if you if you'll indulge me, of um, course. They they absolutely wouldn't have a, a detailed understanding of meteorology because Captain Fitzroy of the Beagle, who took Darwin around the world, mm-hmm. was the person who set up the uh, the British Meteorological oh, Office, yeah. and that didn't hadn't happened then. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> But this, uh, this, this superstition thing mm-hmm. is is a recurring, perhaps more of a motif than a theme in right. in the books. Jack would never admit to being superstitious, but he always acts in a manner which implies that he is superstitious. Mm-hmm. Stephen is the voice of modernity and rationality, and uh, Jack of superstition, and or perhaps paying respects to the idea of luck you know he is lucky jack Aubrey. that's his nickname right um i found it would never agree with that yeah i found it a little bit interesting though that as soon as um mr hollum does take his own life that they get good luck again (laughs) like what is the movie trying to tell us i know i know exactly (laughs) that always annoyed me as well um, so that was the right decision (laughs) what you know basically this guy gets bullied yeah into Into, into suicide yeah like doesn't seem like the right message for all of that and i know i guess just as a my own aside like that is certainly a a very common theme in human anthropology Mm -hmm. at the very least right like uh the idea of the scapegoat Mm -hmm. someone to blame when you don't have anyone to blame Mm -hmm. (laughs) right like that squaring that circle for human social psychology has been understandable but also pretty horrible so i learned that the original concept of scapegoating was like tribes in the Middle East would literally send a goat out into the desert, put their oh, skates really? onto a goat and send it into the desert. Put their scapes to, onto it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> to, to, to expatiate their sins yeah, yeah, yeah. on the goat, you know? And that is, uh, I mean, there are kind of also humorous elements of this in more modern times when people would hold elephants on trial for stampeding people, stuff like that. Just a kind of misalignment of intention (laughs) and what could be going on in the brains of other (laughs) creatures, that kind of thing. But yeah, the, the idea of needing there's a, there's something intolerable, I think to human psychology of having a bad or even just random things happening to you and not knowing why Mm -hmm. that kind of level of uncertainty. So like for the sailors in this, it would be worse to find out that the reason they're in the doldrums is just climate mm-hmm. than a person they don't like or have some sort of negative feelings towards, right? Mm-hmm. And I just think that that is, um, I'll mention that in passing, as something that's probably not a huge part of the books, but I think something the books really get right. Oh, totally. In these sequestered little human societies that yeah, yeah, absolutely. are around. And I think and it's it. one of the achievements of civilization to like not succumb to those impulses. Well, Stephen would represent that little bit of modernity of, of, of the modern way of thinking. But what would he have done had he been in Jack's shoes? Well, sorry, not Jack's shoes, but had he been confronted with needing to make decisions which affect the lives of hugely superstitious people who absolutely believe in the, in the idea of a Jonah? It kind of doesn't matter whether there are supernatural forces at, at work or not. Yeah. What matters is the fact that the people believe there is, right? So you have to act accordingly. This is expanded on in the books several times because Jack firmly believes... He wouldn't. <laughs> he would say that the men believe that having women on board and having Parsons on board uh, is very unlucky. Right. Nonetheless, there are countless times in the in within the series that you have. Uh, I don't know what the right terminology is. Parsons, vicars, you know, members of men of the cloth yes, on board, right. uh, and female characters on board. And again, bad things do sometimes happen. And mm. again, it's kind of partially ascribed to their presence. And it's not easy, again, in early 19th century to go to sailors and ask them if they've accounted for all of their statistical thinking. <laughs> yeah. How about all the times where there was a woman on board and nothing bad happened? Yeah. Are you including that in your no. da- data set? No. <laughs> it's, uh, you say statistical thinking, and again, if, if you'll indulge me. Always. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I knew I liked you. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that the world's first experiment conducted explicitly was on a British naval ship around that same time, mm. studying the effects of citrus fruit on scurvy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So they, like, 
gave it to one ship and not another they had a whole load of people affected and some of them right. uh, were given x treatment some of them were given y treatment <laughs> what which included fresh lemons preserved lemons whatever and uh sucks yeah, to yeah. be the control group <laughs> it does doesn't it yeah yeah <laughs> it does yeah. yeah yeah that's um one of the things i really did appreciate about this movie and and, it, and i appreciate it especially because it was understated it wasn't like it wasn't hitting you over the head with mm-hmm. was this tension between i think maybe is th- thematically mirrored well between the old world and the new world mm. on the one hand you do have these sailors who are superstitious but also have the know-how to take them to places that nobody has ever been able to go to before. And it's only because they can manipulate a new technology. Even though they're the older ships that the British have, they're still new enough to get them across the world. Oh, yeah. Which is something that didn't happen for tens of thousands of years of humans and then hundreds of thousands of years of any other animal before Mm -hmm. that. I guess I really enjoyed that. Um, It wasn't uncomfortable for the characters because they're dealing with other things. But it's definitely there. Oh, yeah. You know, absolutely. And yeah. I think that that maybe is one of the things I really like about it, which does segue me into my favorite parts of this movie, which is the stuff on the Galapagos. Uh-huh. Which, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, I have some thoughts on that, but I wanted to ask you first about your feelings about all of that. Like, how did the books treat it and what you what it makes you think about those scenes? This issue of of of, of the old world traveling around and well, meeting I mean, the new. Well, I mean, the Galapagos oh, for me being a stand-in oh, for maybe the most discernible break intellectually between the old world and the new world. Yeah, knowing, beginning to know where humans came from. Yeah, 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 yeah. In a biological sense. Yeah, I also love the the, the scenes on the Galapagos. They're some of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Maturin's joy and fascination with the the joy that he derives from the natural world and his fascination with it is absolutely something which I related to as a, totally, as a teenager. Yeah. And the m- movie is quite overt reference to evolution and, and Darwin, well, Darwin, when they're talking about the stick insects mm-hmm. and they're saying, you know, I can't remember, it's the young boy, Mr. Blakeney. I think the the, the, the poor bloke who has his, his arm yeah. sawn off earlier on in the movie. Who kind of becomes one of the heroes of the movie. He does, yeah. yeah. Interesting in the book is, um, um, how do you say, a bit libidinous. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> he's a uh, famous, sure. yeah, he's, sure. he's a famous uh, ladies' man. Yeah, he talks about how the stick insects have some. How do they know how to become a stick insect, right? And and, and it's mm. a little reference to to, to evolution. Um, There's some early scenes too where Stephen is like saying, talking to that boy again about like, here's a, yeah. a an insect that looks like a thorn yes. and something else, and it's like, well, how do they know how to do that? Did God make them like yes. that? And then it's kind of like <laughs> a little wink at the camera. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But can you just? Um, <laughs> I don't want to spend too much time talking about how much I love Darwin, but on this the, the on, right place for exactly it. on this on this trip uh, on the Beagle. Darwin was the Maturin figure. Captain mm-hmm. Fitzroy was was the Jack Aubrey figure, and there are many parallels between these two, uh, these four characters. And Aubrey, uh, sorry, <laughs> Fitzroy, <laughs> yes. and uh, Darwin were best friends, and they were they're very good friends for most of their life. And it caused both of them great pain when later on in their lives they had had a rift after the publication of On the Origin of the Species, Mm. because Fitzroy saw the same evidence as Darwin. He saw fossils at the top of Chilean mountains. You know, he he saw finches with different types of beaks, and he saw it all as direct evidence of God's fingerprint on the world, Mm. and specifically of the fact uh, of Noah's flood, right? Sure. Whereas Darwin, of course, came to a different conclusion. Yes, yes, (laughs) As we know. And I, I, I... Knowing all that and and having read a lot of about about Darwin, I, I love that they touched on that in the book in the in the movie. Sorry, yeah, uh, I really did. It's um the movie does a great job of poking a little bit of fun at Stephen, I guess, yep. by him always just not being able to get the specimens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like he's um because the 
the beginning of the movie, it's set in 1805. So at the very latest, they're looking at like a couple of years later by the time they get to Galapagos, which is still way before Darwin got there, right? So one of the things the movie's hinting at is that, oh, if only, if only. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There there was other people who could have come to the theory first, which is, which is. Not historically inaccurate either. No, 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 no. Other scientists working on this. Although I don't know if did Wallace go to the Galapagos? No, he didn't go to the Galapagos. But but it's interesting you bring up Wallace. This is Alfred Russell Wallace, one of Mm -hmm. the who who co-wrote the original uh, paper which was submitted to the Royal Society with Darwin, uh, where they first introduced the idea of evolution by natural selection. Wallace didn't go to the Galapagos. What he did do uh, was go to, I think it was Borneo. Mm. And uh, he made two voyages there, I believe. And the reason he made two was because on the first voyage, either all his samples were lost in a fire on the boat en route back to England, yeah. uh, or they were lo- or they were eaten by mice or something like that. Right. But he had to go back <laughs> because all his samples got <laughs> lost. So that's a nice little parallel yeah, with, yeah. Uh, with so Steve Matchin in the movie. The movie's right? doing that. Oh, a yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a risky business being a uh, being a an natural philosopher <laughs> back in the day. You know? Well, I mean, he even got shot in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Which I have to say, as an aside, like what. Is, what the fuck is that guy thinking? I know, Shooting I know. a gun just around the ship. I know. Well, albatrosses were um, sometimes regarded as being bad luck, you know? Yeah, but like he shot. Like, I know, he's an idiot. Right <laughs> yeah. group of he's an idiot, but it does go back to the superstition thing. Yeah, that, that fair enough, fine. Yeah. But like, wait till the bird isn't right in front of <laughs> all of your like teammates. Just yeah. uh, some basic precaution. Yeah, that, that, that was and kind of... And that guy's of... a soldier, too. He's not just a Exactly. I don't know. Exactly. That was weird. Um, that was a slight contrivance, I thought, on the on the part of the uh, movie. It didn't really make sense, yeah. but and they they managed he, to work. Does he get shot in the books? I can't remember what happens. I can't remember whether it's because he's shot or whether he's stabbed. Oh, I tell you what, I do actually know. Stephen gets injured in a duel and does operate on himself. Oh, uh, you know they do have to go with somebody some... else on the ship. He's in a duel with. He is in a duel with someone called Canning, mm. who is a um, a rich merchant who has taken off with the woman who Stephen loves. I see. Who later becomes his wife. Of course. Yeah. Classic. Exactly. But they're always fighting jewels. That's something which isn't touched on at all in, in the uh, in the movie, uh. but absolutely feeds into this, the world in which men are ruled, or sorry, exist in a world of violence, you know, where violence is completely ubiquitous and they are governed by duty and honour. That is massively expanded on in the books yeah. through the lens of jewels. That makes sense. Yeah. All the scenes in the Galapagos are, are really cool because you get to see all these animals you don't yeah. see very often, and that's obviously pretty neat. But I think more broadly, like I, I'm not really someone who has put much stock in like any terrestrial place being particularly better than any other terrestrial place. Yep. You know, like obviously there's interesting things to see around the world, but I've never like certainly not been like oh this site is holy or something or sacrosanct about it yeah but if i were to it would probably be the galapagos just because of what it did inspire in darwin to think and write about because in my my opinion i think the theory of evolution by natural selection is the most influential idea that has ever happened i I could not agree more you know like it it really does have this like before and after before 1859, after 1859, mm-hmm. in you can trace it through like academic history of what people were talking about when it came to life. The notion that, as you say, like Fitzroy said, well, this is evidence of God, more mm-hmm. fine tuning. And I remember being a kid because you know, and most of the listeners know that I grew up in a religious household. And one of the things that would always come up when, um, we would talk about life or the natural world was like, wow, isn't it amazing? Like the fine tuning that goes into planet earth, how meticulous God had to be to make this work for us. And the total paradigm shift of like, well, we're only here because of that. The, The causal arrow isn't just shifted a bit. It's in the complete opposite direction. Yes. Richard Dawkins calls it the consciousness raising of darwin mm-hmm. and i and i think there's been lots of thinkers who've done consciousness raising evolution i don't think there's been any idea that has done more of that than this no I, I would absolutely agree the only thing i the only other idea which uh, i think comes close in terms of explanatory power and uh, in terms of putting humanity uh, and life in its place is is 
you know, the Big Bang, right? right and yeah, sort yeah. of existence in, in a really large sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the physical world in which we in which in which we live, you know, we can have to speak to some physicists about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the nature of life it makes no sense without evolution by natural selection. Well, and honestly, pun not intended here, like evolution is a more alive theory than Big Bang even is, right? Because it's were you to go to the Galapagos today, as it was back in the 19th century, you would see these animals that are physically in front of you, mm-hmm. that have no, there's no explanatory power for them other than this one that has been, was developed. I guess, may, and this is not, Darwin didn't have to be this way for this idea to be amazing, but I still think it's great that Darwin was like a great dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. all accounts, he was just kind of soft-spoken, mild-mannered, even a little bit reluctant oh yeah to publish because he knew and he was a christian too mm-hmm. before this i think it probably tampered it down a bit for mm-hmm. him personally yep didn't want to hurt his wife yeah didn't exactly want to, hurt his like, to me the galapagos are representative of something like a secular spiritualism yeah. Yeah. where i reflect on what kind of mental freedom can come with this paradigm shift of uh what darwin found there mm-hmm. to me darwin is one of the brits that's like for everybody oh yeah you know what i mean like some of the some of the british heroes are not really understood why they're heroes outside of england but i think darwin is like the one that transcends any oh, I, country I, I, I could you not know like and yeah. i know what it's like to feel reverence or awe for an area or an idea like I did feel that sometimes in church growing mm-hmm. up and the music helps and the stained glasses like mm-hmm. it's it's beautiful but I feel like that would be if if I were to give a choice if I was given a choice where would I want to go it'd be the Galapagos and I I just kind of felt I, that was channeled well I think in in Stephen yes you it know? really was his reverence he's he's almost I mean he, he doesn't know about the treasures of the, of the Galapagos but he would be going on pilgrimage you know yeah if he and I thought it was cool, too, to. because Jack was not opposed to it. No, you but it's, it's subjects. The fascination with the natural world is always subject to the service, to the requirements of the service. Totally. Think, is, is the line that he uses. Yeah. Um, which well, that's true. Again and again. That's know, like, <laughs> I mean, the vast majority of the technological advances of the 20th century happened because of geopolitics. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right? yeah, yeah totally. Like how many um, of the kind of devices we use were developed for Cold War shit? Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> presumably a lot of a lot of us have uh, have watched uh, Oppenheimer now, right? Mm-hmm. No. How much of the advancement in nuclear physics was uh, because of funding by uh, ministries of war? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. Any other yeah, I things think... you want to cover? Yeah, I'd like to kind of discuss the books and their mm. position within sort of the British literary canon more widely. Yeah, right, for sure. This is a comparison which always get, which always gets made that they uh, they get compared to the works of Jane Austen. Obviously, Austen was writing about characters set in her own time, and Patrick O'Brien's novels are, are, are historical fiction. Yeah, but nonetheless, in the way that Jane Austen paints a beautiful portrait of life for middle class women and the challenges they face socially the reliance that they have upon marriage for Mm. social and economic advancement yeah the way she paints that portrait is mirrored in the way that o'brien paints a portrait for middle class men of the same period right there's this desperation amongst the more gentlemanly characters who are the officers there's this desperation for action because action physical violence is an opportunity for social advancement yeah and also you get prize money name. it's how you make get your main yeah without a name you can't get a wife mm-hmm. right you know without violence you can't make a living yeah jack is frequently cast on on a shore without a ship and while he's on shore he's he's on half pay and he's 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 always desperate to go back on on, on to sea. Mm. The characters Aubrey and Maturin, they feel this. They both get married, and they feel Aubrey in particular feels this powerful responsibility towards his family, mm. which is obviously you know <laughs> universal. Yeah. But he has to perform his role as, as as a man, and and as a man he has to provide for his for his family. And there's several times in the books where uh, his relationship with his wife is described as being unsatisfying. He thought there'd be more companionship, mm. but actually he 
he he finds that they're both having to do their roles they're not actually getting along in a kind of authentic sense no they are getting there is love and there is respect but it's not necessarily friendship Mm. they are both chained to what it means to be a wife or a husband at that time yeah right and they're massively massively constrained by it so do the books have much then i guess like social commentary Mm -hmm. of that kind of era Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. they make comment on social mobility for sure mm-hmm. the role the, the roles of men and women at home and of course the books are about the roles of men uh, away from home you know at war yeah they're really underrated you know they, yeah they, yeah you learn so much about 19 about 18th and 19th century uh british society i felt that way just watching it yeah uh-huh. it's like did you get much of a sense of was, was there a did you get any kind of insight into the sort of upstairs, downstairs, you know, upper class versus lower class officer versus enlisted yeah. men dynamic? Um, I think the movie mostly shows that two ways through how they talk. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, think yeah. it's exaggerated. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe it was like that, but it felt like very much like, okay, here are the smart people and here are the sailors. Yeah. And I actually wouldn't say that's exaggerated at all. I think, okay. I think it was your accent like is yeah. more than that. I think your accent Britain is still a uh, a nation which is obsessed with class, yeah. and one of the main ways that we can tell, uh, is, can tell is, is your voice. How yeah. people say things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the other way was the clothing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I was fascinated by everything, like hairstyles. Yeah. And the kind of hats that different people wore. Yeah. And um, even just, like, the importance of flags yeah. in naval life mm-hmm. like all the different ways that that communicates different things mm-hmm. depending on what you want this movie really brought it to life mm-hmm. you know i paused it was lovingly made right i paused the movie at one point just to take to make sure i didn't miss the note of like how hard this movie must have been to make yeah like <laughs> how you because there are there are where, so... where is this ship? Yeah. Why, why why did they have this this ship? There, who, who built that? Yeah, because not it doesn't look CGI at all. No, I don't right? think it is. It's yeah. all practical effects. So they at least have two massive early 19th century ships mm-hmm. that they filmed this in. There are countless scenes with a hundred plus extras mm-hmm. in it, mm-hmm. <laughs> swinging get... from ropes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, like, in it, the smoke. It it seemed like a nightmare yeah. of a movie to make, yeah. and yet it's very vibrant. I feel like these characters are actually living in this yeah. environment, which is a testament to all of their performances. Do the books then talk a little bit? And this is not um, unique to British warships. Yeah. About like how that desire for action is like you are throwing lower class people into the maw. Mm. of battle mm. right i mean you can say that just as easily about world war one or any war really i mean napoleon had no problem doing that either yeah, right yeah, so not, yeah. it's kind of war as such i mean i think one of the reasons we're supposed to really admire jack is that he fights with the men yeah right and that's that's a pretty old i mean that's julius caesar yeah kind of popularity with the men kind of thing right Marcus yes, it Aurelius is. or whoever and maybe this is just we talked about this with the duty thing but it's like well we could probably go we're pretty we're pretty we got our asses kicked mm-hmm. we could probably go could back probably to go, England right? yeah. and at least like get everything done he's like no we shouldn't because he knows probably at some level he's like well no if I go back empty handed I have well I had my orders yeah my superiors are going to have a particular opinion as I well had as my, my orders culture. I had an opportunity to get prize money if you capture an enemy ship you get you are entitled to a certain amount of uh, the value well they talk about it a little bit like at some point Stephen says that at what point is this pride yeah Jack so I'm sure that's in the books too it is yeah, yeah absolutely it is but to go back to one I wouldn't say the books really addressed to that to their failure, to their failing. They don't really discuss the fact that it is upper class people throwing lower class people, <laughs> you know, working class people uh, into the breach. Yeah. Um, no, that no, that isn't really discussed actually, and that hadn't occurred to me. And and I think that is a failing. Just to go into that a little bit, mm. a decent proportion of sailors would be impressed which is essentially enforced conscription. Right. You know, if you were a, a man of fighting age living in a coastal town uh, or working for a merchantman in a time of war, the British Navy was able just to grab you and say, sorry, mate, you're being conscripted. You're coming along with us. Yeah. So these aren't volunteers. Yeah, you know, right. these are just 
just just people you mm. know with families left at home all of a sudden they're being shot at by cannons around near the far side of the bloody south america you know i sympathize with the captain to this extent is that i have found sometimes it's hard to know how to motivate people at work <laughs> yeah and these are people and you work with kids and, and, so, and yeah. uh so you you conscripts. Yeah. <laughs> these are people who send in their own resumes mm-hmm. and desire to uh, be compensated for their time through effort that isn't always forthcoming mm-hmm. and i have a hard time with that i can't even imagine what it would be like on a ship with 100 plus maybe not the most cultivated mm-hmm. of individuals. Uh, yeah. So I, to that extent, I have some sympathy for the Jacks of... People who don't care about source. Jack's pride. <laughs> you know, they care about their grog and their exactly, money. Exactly, yeah, yeah, all of it. Which I guess is like the, why we have the, the mythopoetic idea of this ship is England. Yeah. The um, ethereal ideas that kind of keep people on task mm-hmm. that are bigger than themselves that um, have motivated mass communication and mass coordination in the past. Anyway, any other thoughts before we wrap up? Would you read the books, do you think? Yeah. I don't know if I'd read all 20. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think you really um, need to. About 10 of them are just, you could probably read, are kind of repeats, right? Right. I I feel like, I mean, I might read all of them eventually. But yeah, I would, I I, I was very intrigued Mm -hmm. by... All of it, because again, like, there's just not really many popular stories set at this time with this fidelity to history. Yeah. It's kind of um, an underemphasized era of modern history is the the first kind of few decades of the uh, 19th century, because the last few decades of the 18th century were such a shit show. Mm. And so much happened that they understandably i'm I'm being a little facetious like yeah it's one of the most important eras in human history is that (laughs) like the shift of politics at that time is reverberates to our day in a way that i don't think any other era has yeah absolutely and so it gets its due and there's the napoleon movie coming out pretty soon which i think will at least put a popular spin on some of the things that aren't well known about it yep but yeah like 1800 to 1825 to me is kind of like a black pit of knowledge about history and so this movie was quite exciting i think to be like oh man because as you know i have a trivia brain mm-hmm. so i'm like oh yeah okay so this is here so here was a, who would have been the president you know like that kind of stuff what was happening they have a few throwaway lines about america it's mm-hmm. kind of like by this point probably it's finally out of this the british system to really give a shit about america anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we don't need to emphasize that <laughs> well there's plenty of american characters and america does feature yeah uh, quite I'm heavily sure it does yeah. well yeah i mean this was this would talking about new kids on the block oh yeah like yeah. um this was the era around like the louisiana purchase mm-hmm. and the huge expansion and then american naval presence was growing quite a bit mm-hmm. at this time so that would have been another ship out there maybe not that far south but like this is nerdy but like this is a little bit before this was the era of like america building a fleet so that pirates off the barbary coast would stop mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. pillaging them mm-hmm. it's like what we're a brand new country why are you doing this to we don't have any history with you why are you doing this to us? we didn't we've never like gone to your shores and done Money anything slaves, to you. baby. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, yeah so anyway uh yeah i'd read the books yeah excellent yeah. there is very is great and russell crowe was great he was great him and paul bettany were both really engaging they had a lot of fun didn't yeah. they making that they must have. i think i think everyone did mm-hmm. the, yeah, the director especially he, he clearly loved the the subject matter i guess the there only are question... so many references to the book which yeah. which which go on unmentioned in the I, movie. i'm yeah. sure yeah, yeah i would I, I had to imagine there are a lot of easter eggs in there for yeah you. Good, totally yeah my only question would be like why an australian actor yeah. to play an unbelievably british person I, I guess it makes more sense than an american or a canadian doing it but the amount of British actors who play Americans mm-hmm. is kind of overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do great, and I love it. But given that's the case, there's got to be at least one British actor in the early 2000s who could have managed to be like a very British. Yeah, you would have thought so. That was his golden era, man. Yeah, that was his time, true. wasn't it? He was the big name. Yeah, and I think that 
it was around this time that the South Park episode about him came out. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> Russell Crowe's fighting around the world. Uh-huh. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. And it's just... On the far side of the world. Yeah, yeah. it's just him going around to different countries and fighting people. Yeah. Well, Russell Crowe's <laughs> also played Robin Hood. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's right. Another very British character. Yeah, I, th- I think you, you have a trivia brain. Mm. You know, you love little bits of knowledge, little yeah, Easter yeah, eggs, yeah. Totally. and so does Patrick O'Brien. His his writing is 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 just littered with with references, with classical references, with historical references, and I, I think you'd love it. Yeah. yeah, I really do. All right. Well, I uh, I do like to read, mm-hmm. so I will throw it on the pile. Excellent. The ever growing pile. Uh, any last thoughts? Uh, no, just no? thank you so much for having me. Of course, yeah. I mean, I uh, hope you'll come back. Yeah. Yeah, we'll I'll do a few more Next of these. week we'll do uh, <laughs> the second book. Um, well, anyway, I want to say officially again a thank you, Dan. Uh, Daniel, sorry, Sir Doctor. <laughs> coming on the pop- podcast. Um, I, I would say overall I still remember how to do this, so mm-hmm. that's a good feeling. Thank you again, everyone out there in listener land who um, – has um, probably enjoyed this year-long break <laughs> from hearing uh, the not-so-dulcet tones of my voice. But to the extent that I still have people out there listening, I'm really grateful for you, and uh, thank you for sticking with it. Um, as uh, Really True Fiction actually in September had our four-year anniversary. So we oh, didn't really get to celebrate that at the time. That was the far side of a month. <laughs> so That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> I like the effort. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Do you know that? Okay, well, I have to. I have to. Russell Crowe. Yeah. Russell Crowe yeah. is the um, star of this movie. Do you know the difference between a crow and a raven? <laughs> <laughs> I do, because he told me this joke oh, about three times. Joke. Yeah. <laughs> well, then I'll just skip, I'll skip to it. It's just a matter of opinion. <laughs> yeah, very good. So, as a, my send off is here, Dan, uh, may the force be with you. Thank you. I'm with you. Thank you.